0: John chapter 21 basically comes on the scene after the whole story of the Gospel of John. So I want to kind of begin by saying that uh, John starts with Jesus, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word uh, became man and lived on planet Earth with us. All right. Jesus taught, he uh, had a gathering of disciples, a gathering of people that followed him around, uh, Jesus had a ministry for three years, teaching, healing, um, in a lot of ways even confronting the status quo of the religious leadership of the day. He goes into Jerusalem. He basically uh, poses a counterattack upon the uh, first century uh, second temple, Judaism, which was in the day. Jesus was definitely a revolutionary. He never signed a book deal. He never was on a you know radio show he had a huge following, and, and, and through his life, radically impacted, radically affected history from that time forward. He died, rose again the third day, in accordance to the Scriptures, as the Bible teaches. We looked at this past couple of weeks, that everything in the life of Jesus is, is according to a script, right? Uh, God has completely, thoroughly, detail by detail line by line, precept upon precept, laid it all out in advance. Jesus just simply fulfilled the script or the narrative. Uh, Christianity is a narrative. It's a story. It's a story of God's redemption, of God's love, of God's kindness, uh, basically entering into a fallen, broken, fractured world to bring restoration. That's exactly what happened on the cross. Jesus died for our sin. Uh, Substitutionally, that's what it's uh, referred to as. He dies in our place. He rises again the third day, and then he ascends to heaven. Prior to ascending to heaven, he gathers together with his disciples and others that had followed Jesus throughout his ministry and basically breathes back new life into their crushed hopes. You see, prior to Jesus, or after Jesus, or before Jesus rose again from the dead, um, when he was killed, everybody lost hope. I mean, all of his disciples were just crushed. They had hoped that he was a Messiah. Uh, dead messiahs don't make great messiahs. Uh, and yet everybody had this expectation. He was dead. He was gone. It was over until he rose again the third day. Everybody had renewed faith, renewed hope. Jesus then commissions them. He says to go into all the world and to make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's what they did. Okay? Uh, then Jesus ascends into heaven. Basically, goes up on the cloud, and he's gone. Bye-bye. And he's gone. And he's going to come back again. That's basically the story of the Bible. So what's going to happen now in John chapter 21 is essentially John finishes the story of his life, death, resurrection, and interaction with the disciples post-resurrection. And then basically John chapter 20 could have completely been finished with the last verse of the chapter. I'll read it to you. It says this, verse 30. Then Jesus did many signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these, that He selected, are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that by believing you might have life in his name. So John basically summarizes his entirety of his book by saying, hey, there's a lot of stuff Jesus did. I didn't tell you even half of it. But what I did tell you, I told you because I feel like it's enough, it's sufficient for you to believe. And by believing, you would have life in God by trusting. Right? I mean, the great place to stop, to finish the book. However, there's a chapter 21. And so a lot of scholars have looked at this and kind of felt that it's sort of like an epilogue or just one final continuation of the story. But it's important to note, first of all, that it's a story that has great significance. John, for whatever reason, according to the inspiration of the Spirit, felt that it was needed to, that felt that it was needful to put it in there. So he does put it in there. What we're going to find real quick, and uh, just kind of be aware of this as we look at this, it's a chapter that's basically about Jesus being revealed. Jesus comes back on the scene, sort of this kind of epilogue, kind of like, uh, you know, he's back. And uh, he's going to do some other stuff, you know, before he resurrects from the, or before he ascends into heaven. Um, and so here he does come back to reveal himself in this way. But there's a specific purpose that John has in mind, because what you're going to find is the story really has to do with this guy Peter. Peter was one of the disciples of Jesus. He was kind of the, one of the most vocal of all of the apostles of Christ. One of the most impetuous of all of the disciples. He was a guy. That basically spoke first, thought later, right? Speak first, ask questions later. You know, that's how how Peter operated. He was very passionate. Peter was the type of guy that was probably a thug looking to get in fights. He's the guy that's in the garden in front of like a thousand people, whips out a sword, cuts off the guy's ear. I mean, Peter's ready to take on the world, he's very passionate. But the story concludes in John chapter 21, with simply this: Jesus reveals himself in the story, in John's narrative one more time for a specific purpose. We'll get to that in a minute. Why? Peter fails. So with that, let's jump into the story, see how Jesus reveals himself, see how Jesus or see why Jesus reveals himself, and see what he does to basically bring repair to a relationship to a guy that's failed. Peter. All right? Verse 1 says this. Now, after the disciples revealed himself, or after Jesus revealed himself to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, he revealed himself to them in this way. So already in verse 1, he speaks about Jesus revealing himself twice. John chapter 21 is about Jesus. Alright? Good Sunday school answer is always Jesus. Alright? Always. What's the Old Testament about? Jesus. What's the New Testament about? Jesus. John chapter 21. Good, alright, we're learning, this is great. It's about Jesus, it's about Jesus revealing himself. So it says in verse 2, it goes on, or I should say, Jesus reveals himself to the Sea of Tiberias. Earlier, uh, before Jesus rose again from the dead, he basically tells his disciples, after I'm resurrected, meet me in Galilee, on a mountain I'm going to tell you about. So, the disciples are now back in Galilee. Now we're told in verse 2, it says, Simon, Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathanael, Cana of Galilee, or is from Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee. And two other of the disciples were together with Simon Peter, and he said to them, I'm going to go fishing. So we're told seven apostles in all, seven disciples. Apostles were sent out ones, The disciples basically this is kind of a synonymous term that's used here in the account. Um, and what happens, these seven guys are all hanging out in the area of the Sea of Galilee. You got to kind of get the picture of this to some degree to just understand what's happening here. Galilee was a very rural, small, kind of uh, backwoods type of area where people live. It's kind of like people. I don't even know if people like live on Lake Nassimeno. do they? Maybe they do. Uh, yeah, and I don't know really what they do for a living other than like they drive boats. Okay, all right, they drive boats for a living and they fish. That's kind of what these guys did. They lived on the Sea of Galilee. There's probably not much more action back in the Sea of Galilee than there is in Lake Nassimeno, all right? It's about the same type of deal. Jesus comes to them and he calls them to follow him. So they literally leave behind their father's business. And their father's business living along the seashore of a lake like that would have been fishing. So they leave their business and uh, they basically begin to follow Jesus for three years. And they follow Jesus. One of the things that they ultimately find him or follow him all the way towards is the city of Jerusalem. That would be equivalent to some guy that grew up his entire life on Lake Nacimiento on a houseboat or fishing or whatever, who ends up making his way to downtown San Francisco doing ministry after three years, kind of hanging out with the big city folk, and then finds himself after that going back to his little small town. Neck of the woods where everybody is related and knows someone. All right? That, that's kind of where they end up going back to. Everybody knows each other. And they're, they're back in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus makes his way back up into the region. And they're all fishing. Um, they go back fishing probably because that was what they did. Now, you've got to picture this. For three years, Peter hadn't fished. He was a fisherman by trade. Um, and for three years, he hadn't fished because he had been following Jesus doing ministry with Christ. Um, This is kind of an interesting little insight into what type of person Peter and James and John were. Um, I'll just simply say this. They were not guys that were very well or highly thought of within the culture. Um, The idea of being a disciple or being discipled or having a teacher or a rabbi lead you was very common. Jesus was not unique in being a rabbi and having disciples. That happened all over the place first century, but what Jesus did that was unique with regard to his or with regard to his discipleship program with the guys was that he didn't call the typical guys that would be typically called. Um, we're told according to first century documents that the, the majority of people that were called to become disciples were those that exceeded in the traditional schooling system. I mean, these were the kids like by the time they're like you know nine years old. Right, they're they're super smart. They've memorized the Torah. Um, they they're just they're geniuses, all right? And 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 what happens is around this time a rabbi would identify them and realize, hey, this kid's smart. He knows the Torah. Let's put him into another school that would help fine tune his thinking even further. And so by the time the kids like 17, 18, 19, 20, I mean he's he's like at the head of his class. So around that time, a rabbi would come back and be like, hey, I want you to be my disciple. It's the smartest guy. Now, traditionally what would happen is, let's say, if uh, you're a young, middle-aged kid in your teens, you're not too bright, not too smart, you don't memorize too many verses, the teacher asks you questions, you're always getting them wrong, Uh, at some point, that teacher will pull you aside and be like, hey, I don't know if this is working for you. You might want to go uh, fine tune your hands at your father's trade. It's a good idea. I mean, like your dad presses oil. You might want to go press oil, right? I mean, your dad's a fisherman. Why don't you go uh, clean up the nets for your dad? It'd be a good idea for you, like to learn your dad's trade. That's basically a nice way of saying you're not cutting it, man. You're not too bright. Uh, go fish, all right? You know, go fly a kite, go do whatever. But but just just maybe leave the premise. Is that cool? And, and so, the funny thing is, is Jesus doesn't go into the synagogue to call his disciples. He goes to the seashore. And he finds these guys that are working in dad's business. Why? Because they're dropouts. They're not too bright, not too smart, didn't exceed. Everybody else rejected them. And Jesus calls them. So, Jesus calls guys that were literally overlooked by everybody else. I mean, they're, they're, they're living in Galilee, all right? Now they make their way back to Galilee. Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Um, and they're just trying to figure out what's life going to look like from now on. I mean, Jesus is back from the dead, but things are different. He's not hanging out with us as he used to. It's different. Jesus, it's almost like something's different about Jesus, and ministry's going to go in a different direction. But they're kind of in this holding pattern. What's going to happen with regard to the future of ministry? So they go back to Galilee, probably waiting for Jesus. They're getting a little fidgety, not really sure exactly when he's going to come, when things are going to come together. They're going to meet with him. So Peter, he's a leader, he gathers together with the other disciples. He's like, look, guys, I'm going fishing. Everybody else follows Peter. They all hop into a boat, and they go out fishing. Verse 3, some Peter then said, I'm going fishing. They said to him, then we will go with you. And they went out and they got in the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Now, now Peter, again, he, he's grown up, he's been a fisherman by trade. Peterman, I just kind of picture, Peter, in my mind, I, I picture him as being like this big burly thug, strong, you know, he he's very outspoken. He's the type of guy that just is not like quiet, like, you know, retaining, sitting upon his, you know, opinions. I mean, Peter's the type of guy that's like when he Think something, it's, just, it's already out in the open. Alright, that's Peter. And so here's Peter, he's like, I'm going fishing. He goes out fishing. All night long they fish. I mean, this, this is basically Peter's trade prior to ever meeting Christ. He's back on his own stomping grounds. He's back with his old friends. He's back doing what he was always doing before he met Christ. He throws his nets out all night long, catches Nothing. Nothing. I mean, that's got to be difficult, Alright? right? has got to be hard to have been a professional in something, you go back to it, and there's just no, there's no love, Alright? right? And that's Peter, no love. Nothing good is happening to him, not catching anything. He's probably frustrated. Verse 4 says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, and yet his disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. And then Jesus said to them, children, have you any fish? And they answered him, No. So Jesus is obviously, they don't recognize him, he's at a distance, probably the reason why they don't know him. verse 6 it says, then he said to him, cast your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. Now this is kind of a crazy command. Now think about this, alright? You guys ever like walk out of Pismo Pier, or like Alvala, you see these people fishing? What's the first question you ask when you walk up to them? You're like, did you catch anything? Right, did you catch anything? You're like looking in the like little white... You know, detergent bucket, like there's nothing in there. The guy's got to fish this big, like that. You can't keep that, dude. That thing's a spit, you know? Uh, have you caught anything? Nope. I've been out here all night, I haven't caught anything. Can you imagine walking up, you know, you've been there for like 30 seconds, you got Starbucks in your hand, and you're like, hey, you know, I got a suggestion for you. I mean, you don't even look like you're a fisherman yourself. And you're like starting to throw out, you know, instructions. You're like, hey, you know, I think. If you actually like fish on the other side of the pier, like out some, I think you'll catch something. I mean, that's, that's kind of trippy to think about that. And you probably, the guy wouldn't even respond to you, I would imagine. But here's what happens. Jesus is on a seashore. He's shouting out to them. Do you guys catch anything? No. Uh, why don't you guys throw your net on the other side? Who is this guy on the shore? What's he saying? This is crazy, right? But the crazy thing even beyond that is they actually do it. I mean, for whatever reason, I mean, you got to understand, they're not operating under this understanding of, it's Jesus, let's just cast our net out. You know, we love him. He knows what he's talking about. They're just like some dudes on a shore yelling at us to throw our net out on the other side. They do it. I just kind of, it's funny to me, okay? The Bible's funny sometimes. You gotta have a sense of humor sometimes. So they they threw the net out on the other side. It says, and it says, and when they did this, they were not even able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish that they've caught. In verse 7, all of a sudden, John, all right, John always speaks of himself in the third person in the gospel account. He'll talk about himself like, oh yeah, he's the guy that Jesus loves, you know. And here he talks about it this way, and he says, he says, and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, he then whispers in Peter's ear, shouts to Peter, Peter, I think it's the Lord. I think it's Jesus on the beach, right? Now, this is interesting because, because obviously John, he's pretty in tune with what's happening here, right? And, and I think what's happening is, is John is, is cluing in to a very similar circumstance that had happened almost three years ago. So I want you guys to check this out. Turn back, if you would, in your Bibles to the uh, Gospel of Luke chapter 5. Uh, Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. I want to read this story. This is actually the beginning of the ministry of Christ, and this is also the beginning of the calling of Peter, James, John, all these guys that were friends that were part of this uh, partnership in fishing. Jesus comes alongside of them and basically calls them. I just want you to read this. I want you to hear this story because I think it's insightful, and I think what Jesus is doing here again is sort of scripting out a scenario to basically bring about the similarities to cause them to realize, "Hey, I'm doing something here. God's at work. Don't don't lose sight of me in the little things." All right. Here's what he says in verse one. Now, on one occasion, sorry, that was loud. <laughs> one occasion. While the crowd was pressing on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is another name for the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. He says in verse 2, and then he saw the two boats that were in the lake, but the fishermen who had gone out to them, uh, they were there washing their nets, getting into the, one of the boats, which was Simon's, this is Peter's, he asked him to put it out a little bit from the land. And he sat down in the boat and began to taught the people, teach the people from the boat. And when they had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. So Jesus is hanging out. He's on the sea uh, shore; uh, He's teaching. Jesus, at this time, at the beginning of his ministry, he was starting kind of an itinerant preaching type of a ministry. Again, it was very common for rabbis to go around from place to place or from synagogue to synagogue, and they would teach. Jesus was a spectacular teacher. People liked the way he was teaching, the things that he was saying. He was bringing a freshness to the message of God, And people liked him. He was definitely appealing to the the lower class, the middle class. They were listening to the message, the gospel, and they were being transformed. And so on this particular occasion, you know, hundreds perhaps of people were following Christ and it made it difficult to speak. Uh, They were pressing in on him, wanting to touch him. And so Jesus basically sees this boat on the seashore, happens to be Simon Peter's. Obviously, this is all part of God's plan. And he asked Peter, can I get in your boat? And he launches out just a little bit, maybe 10, 15 feet from shore. Jesus is now going to sit down. He's going to speak to a crowd of people sitting on a boat. Once he's done, his message is done. He's finished. Everybody goes home. Then Jesus says to Peter, Peter, let's go fishing. Let's launch out even further. So they go out in a little boat ride. Tells Peter, why don't you let down your nets for a catch? Verse 5. And then Simon Peter answered, Master... We've toiled all night long. We've taken nothing. Is that your word? I'll let down the nets. So again, Peter's a professional fisherman. He's been fishing all night long. Most fishermen would do it either very, very early in the morning or all throughout the night. And Peter says, we've been doing this all night long. We haven't caught anything. And again, it's kind of one of those funny things, but Peter's just like, whatever. I'm a professional fisherman. You're an itinerant preacher. What do you know? But whatever, I'll throw the net out. And so what happens in verse 6, he says, when he had done this... And when he cast the nets out, he enclosed a large number of fish, so much so that the nets were breaking. Now notice that, that little phrase. The nets were breaking. They are breaking. There's so many of them, the nets were breaking. Verse 7 says, They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come, to help them. And they had come, and they filled the boats, so that they had begun to sink. So not only are the nets breaking, but the boats are sinking, and they've got tons of fish. It says, And they came, and they filled the boats, so that they began to think, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at the, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who are with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so they also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to them, said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their nets to land, they left everything and they followed him. This is the beginning of Peter's new life. I mean, this is the beginning of Peter's life as an apostle, as a disciple, as a follower of Christ. It all started right there, and it all started basically in this very similar story that's in John chapter 20. And it's almost as if like Jesus takes them back to the very beginning, almost in a scripted moment. To say, listen, I am so in control of your life. You just don't even know it. This is how in control of your life I am. You're going to go fish. You're not going to catch anything. I'm going to show up in your midst and tell you to cast your nets on the other side. You'll do it. And you'll catch a lot. Only this time in the story, we're told that the nets don't break. And there's a whole new movement that Jesus is about to bring about in Peter's life. Okay, so back to the story in the Gospel of John. It says this. Uh, John picks up the reality that this is Jesus. Something more is going on. Because again, John was there in that initial stage when they were at the Sea of Galilee. And Peter was there in the initial call. That John was part of that original meeting. And then so he picks up on this and he realizes this is, this is Jesus. This isn't just some guy sitting on the... Seashore. This is Jesus. He's he's in charge of all this. And then it goes on and says, uh when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for the work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about two hundred yards off. Okay, so what's happening here is all of a sudden Peter realized, okay, this is this is Jesus. Peter and again, get this picture in your mind. He's like this impetuous guy. He, he literally he just brought in 153 fish, big fish, we're told. Um, and, and what happens is Peter realizes, Jesus, he immediately jumps out of the boat and starts swimming. you just got to love this. I mean, the rest of the guys are like, oh, okay, that's cool. I guess we'll row the boat in ourselves, you know? <laughs> Don't worry about us. Peter will take care of it, you know? He's like, all right. You know, he's just like already halfway to shore. Don't worry about it. you know? And Peter goes in, he's, he's, like, he's that type of guy that is so passionate about Christ. What I, what, I, what I love about this is it's a real insight into the character of Peter. Peter makes mistakes, man. Peter does a lot of stuff. And Peter's one of the guys that probably gets a lot of you know, trash talked about him, just simply because he's the type of guy that's always stepping out, always saying something bad, always doing something that he regrets later, like cutting off a guy's ear, or saying something where he rebukes Jesus. That's Peter. A lot of times we, we, we fail to like recognize Peter for who he was. Peter was a guy that deeply loved Jesus, and he was very passionate about it. But, but it's also an interesting little bit of an insight, because you get, you get a little bit of a uh, picture of the character, or characteristics of some of the other apostles, right? John. Right? John's more like thinking about, like, what about the fish? Peter's not even thinking about the fish. I mean, Peter's just like, I've got to get to shore. Right? Just who cares about the fish? I guess they'll take care of themselves. Right? And, and, then, and then John's just like, well, we've got to take care of the fish. But John still loves Jesus, right? What I love about this is that, to me, it, it just kind of shows the beauty of different personalities in people. I mean, Peter's got this crazy, excitable personality. He's the type of guy that's probably like, like you know, maybe characterized as like super charismatic type guy. John's more like just quiet, sits down during worship, doesn't raise his hand, barely even sings. He's just maybe just kind of quiet, you know. The problem I oftentimes see, especially in modern day churches, I don't know what the deal is, but we have this tendency to like wrongfully judge people. We're just like, dude, you ain't raising your hand. It's too bad you ain't not worship him. What? Where does this come from? This is, this is not good to get in the habit of looking at people's actions and drawing faulty conclusions. All right? I mean, you can be a guy like Peter and be super excitable, but at the same time, a lot of, be, a lot of times just be wrong in the way that you live. All right? So I just think it's a good little lesson to realize that there's, there's a broad body out there. A lot of different people who love Christ, display it, Differently, And that's okay. It's just perfectly okay. Peter was the type of guy that's going to jump out of a boat, not even worry about the fish that he brought in. Just he just got to get to Jesus. John rose back in. Verse 9, When they had got to the land, they saw the charcoal fire in place and the fish laid on it and the bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So then Simon Peter went back to the boat, hauled the net ashore full of fish, 153 of them. Hey, again, I just can't help but just imagine this picture in my mind. Here's Jesus. They're at this little fire. You can smell like, you know, barbecuing going on. He's cooking bread. Probably like that really good pita bread. And a lot of times they would cook it on rocks. You know, they would like rocks, a big kind of rounder rock get in the middle of the fire, get super hot, and they would take this bread and just and, and just throw it on the rock and then it would actually cook on the rock. And here's Jesus, you know, he's got this fire, he's stoking it and you know, he's cooking bread. And he's like, hey, Peter, why don't you go bring some of those fish? Peter's like, no worries, runs back to the boat, grabs this enormous net of 153 fish. I mean, big fish. And he's just like lugging it all by himself. He's like, I'll do anything for you, Jesus. Right? I mean, just again, just picture this. I mean, he's a burly type of a guy that's just like, I'll do anything for you, Jesus. I love you. Right? So he brings him back, and he's just excited, you know, in verse... Uh, It goes on about verse 12. And then Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. And now the disciples uh, dare... None of the disciples dare to ask Him, Who are you? Okay. I think Joan adds that because I think in the context... Now, you've got to picture this, alright? Jesus has been alive from the dead now for maybe two weeks, two and a half weeks. Alright? Prior to that, the disciples were left with this indelible impression in their mind of watching their friend and Savior, and the guy that they had thought to be the Messiah, brutally tortured and killed. Okay? I mean, they all have these images in their mind of Jesus bloodied, destroyed. They watched Him die. Uh, some of them were even there when they stuck the sword through His side and watched His uh, heart burst and blood and water comes out of His side. They saw all of this. It was gruesome. And now Jesus is alive from the dead. I mean... Imagine, that's, that's got to be hard to swallow that. You know, I mean, even, even though he's there, he's hanging out with you, he's talking with you, he's telling you, don't be afraid of me. You guys are my friends. It's still the reality of like, I can't believe this. You know, he's alive. You know, I just, you can't even imagine what they're going through. It's to realize that that he's actually alive. So here they see Jesus on the seashore, and they're like, I'm not going to ask him if it's really him. Are you? No, I'm not going to ask him. How about you, Peter? I'm not asking. ask him. You know, it's just like, I, I, it is him. They were all afraid. They want to ask him, is that really you, Jesus? They're still just in shock over this. He's alive. He's alive. So here they are. Jesus has come to have breakfast. They knew that it was the Lord, verse 13. And Jesus came and took the bread, gave it to them. And so with the fish... This was now the third time that Jesus revealed Himself to His disciples after He was raised from the dead. Again, the emphasis upon Jesus revealing Himself. What I find amazing about this little story, first of all, as it kind of continues to move along, is that here's Peter. He goes back to the profession that he had known so well. Now he's a professional one. He was a professional fisherman. Probably raised from his youth to be a fisherman. That's what he was by trade. That's what he did for his living until Christ came back. Christ called him to follow Now Peter's back fishing out again. And he's unsuccessful. He's unsuccessful. Until Jesus comes along, he's like, listen, cast your nets on the other side. Now he's successful. I think it's a subtle way in which Jesus is lovingly speaking to Peter. Peter, don't forget, without me you can do nothing. With me you can do all things. Without me you can do nothing. It's almost as if Jesus is trying to say, and this is one of the beautiful things that I love about this passage, is that sometimes Jesus calls us to do things that are way beyond just normal. I mean, it doesn't make sense. You're out fishing all night long. You're talking to a guy who's a professional. You're telling him, casting it on the other side. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. But I think what it shows me, clearly, is that Jesus... Knows our lives and our professions better than we can ever know. It's kind of an interesting. And Jesus wasn't a fisherman for, for his living by trade, and vocation. He was a savior. But even as savior, he knows Peter's profession clearly, and he's able to give advice. He knows how to lead. He knows how to guide. And I love the reality of this is because sometimes we, you know, we, we, tend to look, we can look at other people and be like, nobody else knows what I'm going through. Nobody else knows this business, this trade, this vocation, this stuff, this skill better than me. And yet sometimes I think Jesus, in, in just sheer grace, just says, go for it. Try to figure it out yourself. And we fail. And that's his kind way of just saying, listen, I know you and I know your life better than anything. Listen to me. Follow me. Let me lead you. All right? So what it goes on into that, they sit down, they have a meal. Verse 15, it says, and then they finish breakfast. And then Jesus said to Simon Peter, okay, the way the story goes now is Jesus is going to begin to talk to Peter about some stuff. Now, I want to try to fill in the gaps here real fast by way of context and background. The last time that Peter has any real interaction with Jesus on a, on a real personal, deep level is uh, we're not told of any like real close, intimate conversations that Peter had with Jesus up until this point. I mean, Peter saw Jesus rise again from the dead. He was part of the original two gatherings uh, when Jesus shows up. So he's already seen Jesus alive. Peter was one of the first guys there at the grave to realize that he's alive from the dead. So Peter's already had sort of an encounter with the living God. All right, But we're not told of any other occasion where Peter actually has sort of like this conversation with Jesus about the circumstances that took place prior to Jesus' death. All right, So the, what I'm talking about is this. Um, Just before Jesus died, the last night before Jesus died, we've been looking at this over the past few months, there was this this occasion where Jesus sits down with his disciples in this upper room, and they have a meal together It's called the Upper Room Discourse. And during this meal, or the Passover meal, Jesus is talking to them about his departure, and all of the disciples are shocked by this. They're surprised that Jesus has been talking about leaving, um, because what had just happened four days prior to that Jesus comes into the city on the, back of a, uh, on the back of a donkey, and everybody's throwing down palm branches. They're recognizing him as the king of kings and lord of lords, and, and they're singing Hosanna. And so they're basically appointing Jesus to be king. And so what happens in a circumstance, while they're sitting down eating, Jesus begins to talk about, I'm going to leave you guys. I'm going away. And not only that, the worst part of all this, Jesus basically says, one of you guys is going to betray me. And he's talking about Judas is scary, but everyone's a little bit scared. They're like, who's he talking about? Is it me? Right? So John is sitting next to Jesus in this, in this meal. Um, and then he, he, Peter from across the table signals to John, he's like, John, ask Jesus who's going to betray? Right? And so then jo- Jesus actually tells him it's the guy Judas. But what happens is then Jesus gets up, washes the disciples' feet, everybody gets their feet washed. This interaction between Jesus and and the disciple, or Jesus and Peter. And then later Peter basically affirms to Jesus, Jesus, listen, I'll never leave you. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And then another account, I think, is Matthew. Peter adds this other statement. He goes so far. Okay, you've got to imagine this. This is is in a nice little intimate room of maybe twelve, maybe thirteen people. Small. Right? They're in this little room having meal together, there's like little candles all around, like little like oil lamps, and it's just this beautiful ambiance, you know, and, and they're talking about, you know, the Passover and Jesus washing their feet, it's just kind of this beautiful moment, and then all of a sudden, Peter basically speaks up and says, Jesus, you know, you're talking about people betraying you, he says, I'll never betray you, the rest of these guys, they'll betray you, I, I won't. And that's what Peter's saying. Jesus, these guys, equal loser. All right? Me, winner. All right? They'll betray, and I'll never betray. All right? They're unfaithful. I'll be faithful. To the very end, I will die for you, is what Peter goes on to say. Okay? Imagine this, okay? If you're one of the disciples, let's say you're part of, like, Peter's business prior to following Jesus, like James and John. How would you feel about Peter at that moment? I'd be pretty mad, all right. Dude, the guy just totally disrespected me in front of Jesus. That ain't cool. He totally put me down. I would imagine all these guys are a little bit upset with Peter, right? I mean, but again, Peter, I think he's doing this out of out of a good heart. He loves Jesus. He's a guy that speaks first, asks questions later, as I've already mentioned. But but but, nonetheless, what he said was said. It's caused the effect and and by an act of irony. Peter's the very first person to betray Jesus. And we're told in one of the Gospel accounts that after the rooster crows, the eyes of Jesus make contact with the eyes of Peter, and then Peter runs out and cries. Peter runs out and weeps. That was the last thing that happened between Peter and Jesus before he died. No, he's risen again from the dead. He's talked with them, he's hung out with them, he's seen them. But they've never, never, like, talked about that moment. Okay, let me just try to summarize it this way, all right? What happened that night was Peter failed. He failed, all right? And failures like that just don't go away. Because failures like that tend to not only affect relationships with other people, but they also affect this relationship between you and God. And here's Peter, no doubt, living with this reality in his mind that ah, blew it. Maybe that's a little bit part of the reason why, you know, I mean, even though Peter loves Jesus, he's willing to jump out of the boat and swim in to see Jesus, but there's still, you know, it's you can almost kind of picture Peter running up and seeing Jesus and all of a sudden remembers, failure. Oh, that's right. Hey, what's up, Jesus? Good to see you, you know? And all of a sudden, this reality like sinks in like, oh, that's right. I want to love him. I want to hang out with them, but I failed. I failed, and that's never been dealt with. Jesus just sits down with the other disciples. They guys just have a meal. After they're done eating. Jesus turns to Peter and he asks him this question. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Okay. Scholars have tried to debate, you know, as to what exactly he's talking about. What are the these that he's referring to? Um, kind of one of the disadvantages of reading is that you don't get voice or tonal inflection. So it's kind of hard to know, like, what was the emphasis on? Was it on the these? Was it, do you love me more than these? Was it, do you love me? Or was it, do you love? You know, it's kind of hard. Like, to like, know exactly what, what was he talking about? Like, okay, here's, here's three examples. Um, do you love me more than... Then these could have been a reference to his buddies. James, John, you know, these other guys, his, his partners, his friends, the guys that he all went fishing with. Do you love me, Peter, you know, more than these guys? One, one, one possibility. Another one is do uh, you love me more than the knees, than the fish? These this, this fish symbolize your, your vocation, your life, your livelihood. Who you are, in a sense, your identity, what you thought that you were. Do you love me more than your identity? Do you love me more than what you used to do, than your vocation, than the things that you've given yourself towards? Do you love me more than these things? It's Possible. But it, here's what I think it is, actually. I think what Jesus is saying, he's picking up this dialogue from prior to his death. And it's almost as if Jesus were to say, Hey, Peter, in light of everything that's happened over the past few weeks, do you still think you love me more than these disciples? Do you still think that, Peter? Do you still live under that presumption? Can you imagine that? It's like you just finished eating this amazing meal. You've just brought in 153 sheep or fish. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Jesus, like, asked this, this radically searching, pressing, and really discomforting question. So, so, Pete, by the way, just thinking off the top of my head, do you still think you love me more? It's almost just like, he, he asked this in front of these guys, because these guys were shamed when Peter first announced it. Are there any type of people that can, like, say things and then you then you forget, like, six minutes later what you say? In other words, you, you can just be impetuous and say things and your, your tongue just kind of, like, can hurt people and you're like, you don't even know it. Anybody? I'll raise my hand. I'm that person. All right? Sometimes I do that. I admit, man, sometimes I do that with my wife. It's horrible. I... I I don't have the emotion anymore. My wife might still have the emotion. She's like, i got a dagger on my back. like, for what? Because of what you said to me. Like, what did I say? You don't remember? It was like a minute ago. No! You know, it's just like, and that's bad. That's a fault of mine. And I think in some ways, Jesus is like lovingly, humbly bringing Peter back to the recognition that Peter, what you said that night caused damage was a revelation of your arrogance it was just downright false. But we've got to deal with it. Do you still think you love me more than these? And then Peter says, and the word that Jesus uses here, do you agape, me? Now there's several different words in the Greek that are used uh, to describe the word love. One of them is agape, another one is phileo. Um, uh, John actually uses both of these terms, oftentimes interchangeably. Um, The word agape is a very strong word. Sometimes I think it's been wrongly identified as being, it's the distinct love that defines God's love for people. And the reason why they say that is because it's most oftentimes used to describe God's love for people. However, there are other passages in the New Testament, um, for example, John 3, verse 19, where it says, um, men love darkness rather than light. So the word "loved" for darkness or love darkness is the same word agape. So it's possible for people to love darkness with agape. So we, we have to kind of go back to the drawing board a little bit in terms of definition. What does the word agape mean? I think a better way to understand the word agape is this concept of, of deep-hearted, deep-rooted commitment based upon value. It's, a, it's this idea of like deeply committed. And so here Jesus is asking Peter, so Peter, are, are you deeply committed to me? Are you deeply committed to me? And then Peter answers and said, Lord, you know that I love you. And the word that he uses for love to respond back is, I phileo you. You know that I phileo you. Which is, which is not... You know, some scholars have kind of read into this, like, man, Peter's like, he's ashamed, so he's answering a lesser love. The, the word phileo is, is not always necessarily a lesser love. It all depends upon the context, the way it's used here. It'd be almost like if my wife asked me, Brian, do you love me? And my response was, rather than saying, yes, I love you, but rather said, I'm your husband. Of course the same type of idea. Rather than using the same word to reciprocate, I use another sort of um, uh, idiom to speak back. And I think that's kind of what Peter's doing. He's like, Lord, you, you know that, that, that I love you. You know that we're deeply, uh, that I'm deeply committed to you and that we're, we're, we're on this deeper level of friendship and fellowship with each other. And Jesus says these words to him, and feed my lambs. So Jesus calls him to do something, to take care of my lambs. This word lambs is basically sh- a little tiny sheep, little baby sheep. And they're, they're basically this idea of like a tender, loving, um, vulnerable type of a sheep. He's like, Peter, if you love me, then feed my little sheep. Take care of them. And then Jesus, again, in verse 16, he says, Then he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him a second time, Yes, Lord, you know that I love Love you. Again, phileo, Jesus uses the word agape. And then he said to him, then tend to my sheep. This is basically the idea of shepherding my sheep. I think it's important, first of all, to understand, in terms of the broader, bigger context, Jesus is now talking about his church. He's talking about his church. And he refers to them in really tender terms like sheep. And I think what he's doing is he's calling Peter to a charge of oversight over The church over the sheep to love them, to serve them, to tend to them. I think in that it's it's essential to understand who the church belongs to. They belong to Jesus. Because the reality is, like, Calvary Slow is not my church. I, I always get troubled, man, when I hear pastors like, oh yeah, my church. Really, you don't have a church. Jesus has a church and he entrusts them to you. That's it. It's his church. You're just simply a caretaker. I think it's important to realize that. You might be leading a Bible study. You might be somebody you know, that has been involved in some sort of a group, overseeing some group of people. You've got to understand, people that see those sheep as their own and not Jesus's can very quickly, very easily turn into an ego trip or very quickly and very easily begin to abuse the sheep as their own. They're like, my sheep, I can do whatever I want with them. The reality is they're not your sheep. They're Jesus's. And Jesus entrusts them into the care of pastors. And good pastors, good shepherds recognize that and are are just seeking humbly to do the the best they can to lead the sheep where Jesus wants them to be. So Jesus says to Peter again a second time, then shepherd my flock. And in verse 17, it says, then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? This time the word Jesus uses for love is phileo. So he basically uses the same word that Peter's been using all along to ask the same question. Peter, do you love me? And then Peter, now we're told, is grieved. It says Peter was grieved because he had said this a third time. Do you love me? And then he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. This is exactly where I think Jesus was seeking to bring Peter. This third time around, as Jesus sort of questions him. Now, again, you've got to get the picture of this. It's it's around a little campfire. Everybody's just kind of full. They've just eaten a lot of fish, a lot of bread. And they're they're just sort of talking. Jesus is leading this conversation with Peter, but the rest of the guys are sitting around listening. Three times Jesus asked Peter, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. You know, take care of them. And in all this time, then finally Peter, the third time Jesus asked him this, he's just bummed. And the word grieved is just like sad, bummed, his heartbroken. But then he responds this way to Jesus. He basically just says, listen, Jesus, you know all things. And it's almost as if that's exactly the place that Jesus was trying to get Peter. Because prior to all this, Peter, it's almost as if Peter thought, I know myself. And I'm strong. And I know who I am. I'm powerful. I know. I know I will never betray Jesus. I know I'm better than these other disciples. I know that I'm strong. I know that I'm powerful. I know that I'm a giant. I know that I can do everything on my own. I don't need help. I know that. It's almost as if Peter knows All of these things, quote unquote, about himself. As if Jesus has to walk him through this path to very gently crush him. Peter, you don't know yourself. You don't know anything. And Peter just comes back to this place of like, Lord, you know all things. You know all things. Peter's basically at this place where just like, God, I gotta give up. I stop. I, I relinquish my rights because everything that I thought I knew about myself, I thought that I was a great fisherman. I can't even do that well. I thought that I was a committed, loyal disciple. I can't even do that well. I thought I was a good warrior. I can't even lop a dude's head off. I shoot for the head and I hit the ear. I'm not even good at that. As if Jesus is saying, Peter, I want you to know one thing: that I know all things. I see through your facade. I see through your fakeness. I see through the the identity that you put up in front of all these other people, and it's just fake, Peter. I see that. And as if at that moment, Peter was like undone. You guys, I. I I think, honestly, that's a place that a lot of times Jesus just tries to bring us to. To just recognize, you aren't who you always think you are. We do so much in our lives to convince ourselves otherwise, don't we? When we choose certain people to hang out with based upon coolness. I want to hang out with them because I want to be known as cool. So I'll hang out with the cool people. All right? Or we choose certain decisions in life and we go certain directions in life because like, I want to be identified as this or seen as that or understood as this or recognized as such. And we oftentimes, we find ourselves hitting frustration after frustration after frustration. And it, guys, it takes an awful lot of energy to try to continue to keep living a lie. An awful lot of energy to just keep living a lie. And it's as if Jesus orchestrates this whole circumstance to bring Peter to this place of like admitting, confessing. I'm found out, Jesus, you know everything about me. Everything. I'm a horrible fisherman. I'm a horrible disciple. I can't do it right. I don't know how to love properly. I put down my friends. I wound them. I say stupid things in front of them that just break their hearts and ruin fellowship. Jesus, you know me. And it's as if at that moment this light clicks on and Jesus breathes not only forgiveness, because he's already forgiven. All right? You gotta understand this. Jesus is already or Jesus has already forgiven Peter. That's what the cross did. But here's what Jesus does now: He brings restoration. But I love this, because he actually takes Peter, says, "Peter, we've got to make this right, because I'm going to entrust you with something that's bigger than what you can ever even imagine. I'm going to give to you my very sheep, and I want you to love them. Peter's going to ultimately cost you your life. That's where Jesus moves on to the very next section, and he says, "This is how you're going to die." So it's kind of a funny thing, because like the conversation is just like, Peter, do you love me? Oh, hey, by the way, this is how you're going to die, bro. You know, it's just like, now that we got that out of the way, I'm just going to let you know, here's how things are all going to end, all right? Yeah, that's what Jesus does with them. And then he goes on in verse 18, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, They used to dress you, you used to dress yourself and wherever you wanted to go. But now that you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And this is said to show the kind of death that was to glorify God by the saying, follow me. And basically, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, all I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bring you back to the place whereby you just simply follow me. But following me is not the way that you have scripted it, Peter. See, Peter was used to following Jesus his own way. Right? I mean Peter's way. Peter's Peter's way of following Jesus is sword in hand, ready to cut people's heads off. Peter's way of following Jesus was, Jesus, I'm better than everybody else. I know it. I'll prove it to you because I'll never betray you. It is if Jesus says, listen, the way of the kingdom, the way this thing works, is you'll follow me my way. That will involve a cross. It will involve dying to yourself. It will involve you humbling yourself to the level of a shepherd to serve my little lambs, to take care of them, to feed them. They're my precious lambs, Peter. I want you to take care of them. That's what he goes on to do. In verse 20, this says, And then Peter turned and saw the disciples whom Jesus loved. This is John. And this is the one who had been reclining at the table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw it, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? I love this. It's like Jesus just tells Peter, Peter, here's how you're going to die. So they're getting up, walking away. There's John. And it's as if Peter turns back. He's like, what about John? How's he going to die? I mean, that's that's cool. You tell me how I'm going to die. What about John? All right? What about that guy? I mean, you're telling me, for all these other people, how I'm going to die. What about him? I love this, because then Jesus just goes, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Don't worry about John. Don't worry about other people, Peter. You just keep your eyes on me. You follow me. You serve me. And that will keep you preoccupied. All right? And then, I love this, because a rumor arises out of this statement that Jesus makes. A rumor. All right? Can you believe that? I and mean, have Jesus' words ever been twisted? Uh, it's just shocking, alright? I mean, even by the time John writes this, he's like, listen, rumors are already spreading. They're just like false teaching. Here's the false teaching. It goes on. He says, verse 23, So the saying, this saying spread abroad among the other brothers, other disciples, that this disciple, John, was not going to die. Yet Jesus did not say that he was not going to die, but if it was my will that, I, that he remained until I should come, then what's that to you? So John's basically like, look, this horrible rumor spread around that John's never going to die. He's like, that ain't true. Is uh, at least it would be great, but I don't think it's true. It's like John's just saying, rumors are already circulating about things that Jesus says. That kind of sets in sort of a trajectory the rest next 2,000 years where everybody has an opinion upon what Jesus has to say. It finishes up here in verse 24. This is the disciple, that's John, who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, uh, and we know that this is the testimony that is true. And now, there are also many things that Jesus did where every one of them were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So basically John finishes by saying this. He says, "Listen, there's a lot of things that Jesus did, a lot of things that Jesus taught. I could have told you a lot of them. I didn't. I told you what I thought that would have been sufficient enough for you to have learned and to have come to faith in Christ and trust him, to love him, to follow him. John's whole objective is to bring the audience of hearers to a place of recognizing that Jesus is great, that he's more than great, that he's the Messiah, and that he's more than the Messiah, that he's God. That God himself steps into his own creation, makes himself known, takes upon himself the, his own curse that he places upon fallen creation to save and to make things right once again. So, in summary, guys, this is the message I think of John chapter 21. Jesus reveals Himself after the resurrection for the purpose of restoration, of failures. That's pretty good news, huh? I I love this picture. Because it's like, the question is, what does Jesus do with failures? How do you deal with people who have failed? And I love this. Jesus just comes on the scene, gently walks them through their failure, but brings about not just forgiveness, but restoration. You guys, I hope you hear the voice of God today. That's that's not God's. I've said this so many times. God's ultimate goal in the universe is not judgment. It's life. It's life. But the problem is, is that naturally we are inclined. To not follow God. Naturally, we are inclined to go our own way. To do what we want to do. To follow our own path. To think that we're the master of our own destiny. That's what we're naturally inclined to do. God sends His Son with a simple message. Follow me. Follow me.